my name is Dimitri. I'm Isabella. Alexander. I'm Zali. I'm Teddy. And I'm 23. And I'm 12, 16 years old. Almost 28,000 young people. Aged between 12 and 24. Are homeless in Australia. Earlier on any given night. Did you know that a survey of young people on youth allowance found that 9 in 10 skip meals and 1 in 3 have withdrawn their studies because of lack of funds? Did you know that 1 in 3 young people aged 15 to 24 who seek help from homelessness services identify as Indigenous? Did you know the youth unemployment rate is now at 13.9%? More than double the national average. In the spirit of reconciliation, Why Foundations acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Young and Homeless podcast brought to you by Why Foundations, New South Wales peak body for youth homelessness. Why Foundations supports services who support young people who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness. My name is Pam Barker and I'm the CEO of Why Foundations and I will be your host and I'm honoured to take you on the journey while I interview passionate and dedicated human beings who want to end youth homelessness in Australia. In this podcast series, we will chat with some amazing speakers who are politicians, government workers, service providers, researchers, academics, and people with a lived experience of homelessness. We will tackle some of the important issues faced by children and young people at risk of or who are experiencing homelessness in Australia. Welcome everybody to the Young and Homeless podcast. My name's Pam Barker and I'll be the host today. Today I am um, joined by Dor Akesh. Dor is the Head of Settlement Services at Settlement Services International Group, a community organisation and social business that supports newcomers and other Australians to achieve their full potential. SSI, for short, work with all people who have experienced vulnerability, including refugees, people seeking asylum, and culturally and linguistically diverse communities to build capacity and enable them to overcome inequality. In his role, Dor provides strategic and operational management of settlement services in Queensland and New South Wales, including the SETS program delivered by New South Wales Settlement Partnership and Access Community Services, Refugee Health Nurse Program and Women at the Wheel Program, working to ensure high quality standards and performance are maintained. Dor also manages the Community Support Program. Thank you for joining us today, Dor. Thank you. It's my absolute pleasure to be here and talk to you guys about the matters that are important in homelessness for people and particularly young people from cultural backgrounds. And we're very thankful to have you today. So thank you for agreeing. To kick us off, tell me a little bit about yourself. Why do you do the role you do and what makes you so clever in your role? What's your background? Yeah, so um, over 17 years ago, a little 15-year-old landed with family at Sydney International Airport on route to Brisbane and landed in Toowoomba, a very country town outside Brisbane and later on moved to New South Wales back again. Where I came from, um, straight from Kakuma refugee camp, Mm -hmm. where I've been there for nine years. Wow. Um, And prior to that, I was born in South Sudan and uh, escaped war early age of four. And after escaping war, and I remember vividly having to run for life, dodge bullets, you know, we've had airstrikes landing right in uh, the vicinity of our compound. We've had RPG rocket propelled grenades, and we had to really uh, continue our journey to, to safety. All of that survived it, came to Kakuma refugee camp, where we stayed there with minimal support. The UNHCR agencies were able to provide basic needs, such as food. On a fortnightly basis, you get like three and a half kilograms of maize flour to survive on for two weeks. School, I started my school under a tree, you know, sitting on a stone and riding with a stone on the floor. And, you know, medical facilities or healthcare was limited. Mm. Um, 
And even as I speak to you today, I'm speaking from a place of uh, grace, given that before and few weeks uh, when I was about to come to Australia, I had typhoid, chronic malaria and yellow fever, all three at once. I would walk to school in the morning, around about 11, I get shut down, I have high fever, I have headache, I blinded by that fever. I would go back home camping under a, a tree to get some shade and walk back home and go and sleep to rejuvenate without anything to eat and then wake up the next day and the cycle begin. I was lying under a tree when the camp was attacked by local bandits. Remember it precisely around about June. We had just done a World Refugee Day at mm. a school, a high secondary school over there. And we came back home the very next day. You hear gunshots. I'm lying there, you know, I'm thinking, okay, that's that's going to be the end of me. I'm not going to be able to run um, weak. So my auntie came and I, I, and she was able to take me out of there. We went and camped under a local uh, UNACR office and wasn't big enough for everyone. So people kind of went into local surroundings, the market town where there's a lot of people and you hide in the market town. So we hide under a tree. I'm lying there, my little sister and my auntie. And then uh, through that chaos, my friend or friend of my brother actually came to me and say hey Dor, your family is going to australia and i was like oh, no no hang on a second are you trying to motivate me to keep me going yeah. and he was really like no 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 serious your names are there you better let your mom know because my mom has left for nairobi yeah. the kenyan capital to go and actually follow up this uh, resettlement process. Wow. And so I got up. I don't know where I got the energy and the will to run to the notice board to confirm for myself. And indeed it was true. I was going to leave that destitute and, and come to Australia. So I arrived here on uh, June 8, in 2003. Wow. Uh, privilege. And that's the story that actually inspired me and gave me the passion to be able to support other people who were in that similar situation. And settling in Australia was much to the same as a teenager. You know, was fortunate enough to get a scholarship into St. Ignatius College, Riverview. Wow. As wonderful as that was, because I was able to now have a proper education and, you know, needing to focus on it. I was offered by the Jesuit Refugee Services to board there as a board. And it was there that when I actually got my tip for working in the community because wow. the school community was predominantly in the northern suburbs, affluent suburbs compared yeah. to the west where I come from. It's predominantly uh, people from singular cultural background, you know, the Anglo, people that are well off yeah. compared to this kid wow. who is a refugee kid for once, who is from a, a an African background, mm. who is then in this school community that is rich, you know. Mm. So I was in a, in that place. My ignorance was that focus on your education door. You're okay. But that wasn't the case, Pam. Mm. I found myself having to struggle three months in. So first three months, academic performance is good. Life at the school, good. I'm just yeah. focused. Three months down, I start to dip. Uh, yeah. so now pressure comes in, cultural issues on the you know schoolyard. Yeah. You know, I didn't fit in. Yeah. School started to catch up with me. The accent started to roll with me and I started to say, ah, I need to learn this. Lots of things um, that start to impact me. So um, much pressure. All my pressure. There's, there's the athletics teacher and the football. I'm a passionate footballer. But I've got athletic skills that this school teacher wants me to utilize. Yeah. And so torn in between these, becoming stressed. Mm. And my performances just go down. And then the school headmaster talked to me and said, how are you going? What's happening? Talk to me. Be honest. And as I opened up, he heard that. And he said, look, I'm going to call the whole school community. And we're going to tell them who you are. I have people asking me, so where are you from? And I would say, I'm from Africa. Of course we know. Okay, all right. I'm from South Sudan. Where is that? Mm. Okay, thank you for asking. <laughs> You're going to ask me, where is that? So I, I, I would resort to saying, oh, you know, Egypt, it's just the country below Egypt. 
yeah. and, and solve all those issues. So the, the headmaster said, okay, they don't know you. We're going to uh, let them know. So yeah. call the school assembly. This is 1,500 kids and teachers and school community in front of the assembly. Myself and my brother brought my mom in and we talk about our experiences. That changed the school attitude towards people that are different. Yeah. And that's when I pick up and say, okay, this is the same issue that needs to happen in the community. I'll use my talents. I'll use my every bit of information to share my experiences with people in the community mm. um, and in that process I, I started doing drama classes I walked into youth centre and the youth, the youth worker was like here uh, do something play soccer play pool table play ping pong play computer games I said okay I want to do something different I want to write back in the rest you can used to write poetry, uh, drama, artists. So I said, I want to write. What do you want to write about? My experience. I want to share them. I want to perform a play. Now I got other young people involved. My sister, my cousins, my friends brought them in and we perform a play called, in the first place it was called Shine. It was my time to shine. And then the local government, this was Auburn Council, liked it and say, okay, let's work with this group and share those experiences in our community. And so we got funding and I got employed as a youth worker to support wow. that project. And that's how I started to work. And we let her perform a much bigger play called Walking in My Shoes. Brilliant. It was done in Riverside Theatre. So that was my idea to kind of share my experiences with other people in the community so they can understand me and understand other people that comes from refugee background and different cultures so that we can be able to have a harmonious community. And I got into youth work like that, many, many things. So that's the passion that drives how I do things and what I do in, in this sector. Wow. And what a story. And thank you for sharing that. That's your lived experience and a very powerful lived experience that shapes and molds why you do what you do and who you are today. And as I was listening to you, Dor, there's so many layers. There's the effects of trauma, the effects of um, trying to fit in to a very different culture and society and bravery and the resilience of yourself and your family definitely heard in your story through how you just went to school and gave it a go even though it was really hard and there were struggles and then you use that to empower change to really affect that and that's a really nice segue because I wanted to talk about your role at settlement services what does settlement services international do and what what do you do in your role there a very good question. Um, Settlement Services International, as you uh, had uh, introduced it earlier, is a community organization and a social business uh, that focuses on supporting people with vulnerabilities and newcomers um, to Australia, mainly supporting people who come as refugee or humanitarian entrants, asylum seekers, people that are from cultural and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Mm -hmm. We have the humanitarian settlement program, which helps from when you arrived in the airport to when you established halfway there in the community. And then there is the settlement engagement and transition support program, SETS, which where I worked in, I coordinate the SETS program here in New South Wales as well in Access in Queensland. Our SETS program is delivered by a consortium and it is through this consortium that my role look at as supporting organizations um, that have you know localized delivery and extensive history of supporting newly arrived migrants the migrant resource centers the ethno-specific agencies and smaller neighborhood centers across New South Wales from New England all the way to Dubbo to Illawarra and Shoalhavens organization that delivered the SETS program so I support um, those agencies and and be there play the critical role of liaising with managing stakeholders both government agencies and ensuring that the services delivered do meet the needs of people that we service, people that has come from different walks of life and ensuring that they are able to be settled and become members of the Australian community and participate. That's what they meant. All people that come to this country want to begin a life. Mm. And how do they begin a life? The important services that uh, we delivered will help them to establish a, a connection to their local communities and also supporting uh, young people, particularly from the Youth Collective, which I um, an initiative that I ran for uh, three and a half years in supporting young people, building their capacity, sharing their uh, expertise, and and also involving and engaging them in advocacy-related issues, and also ensuring that they are able to be supported, settled here. There's a community sponsorship as well, which I uh, looked after, which works with Australian communities yeah. to look at uh, sponsoring people that are in refugee situations, 
welcoming them and integrating them into the Australian community. And so those are the kind of priorities. also have the youth transition support in Queensland, yeah. uh, which help young people into employment and education-related activities to help them to be able to um, acquire skills that they can use much further in their life. So those things, those many diverse programs and the stakeholders that comes with that is the responsibility I do. And as I do this, I always reflect on my life as a uh, new arrival and also um, the professional abilities that I've been able to uh, acquire through their roles. Um, as I worked here at SSI for the last uh, 10 years, this is my 11th year with wow. SSI. And I've done all those sorts of roles, including welcoming people from the airport wow. to then supporting young people to then uh, managing teams to be able to ensure that they support the, the communities. And, you, you know, so that to me has shaped me along the way in being able to support communities. Yeah. Dor, it seems like SSI gives a real nice wraparound feel to those who are needing support. And it sounds like you you guys meet people where they're at at any stage that they're needing help by what you've said. I'd love to really focus on young people because that's our our passion as it is yours. And I know you talked about being that young 15-year-old coming to Australia and the experiences that you had had throughout your life. It was normal, I guess, for you. As you said, from a very young age, you were in a refugee camp for some time, even though we know that's not a normal thing that people should go through. But it, it sort of has that feeling really growing up you reflecting on just laying under the tree just going well this is what happens in this experience and then that realization you could come and obviously you would see this happen all the time with these young people who come to Australia and I know um us Australians forget this because we all don't know someone who's that had that experience so I really want to talk about the experiences of these young people and educate our listeners today about what it is you need to know or understand being a youth worker, being a uh, caseworker, being a trauma worker in this space when working with young people. Can you tell me a little bit more about, we know that young people aged 12 to 24 continue to represent a significant percentage of the humanitarian entrance, sorry, to Australia. And according to the recent Mayan data snapshot, 49% of young humanitarian entrants were of high school age, 12 to 17 years roughly. What are some of the challenges that these young people are facing when they're coming in? So they're presenting to SSI, they're getting in contact with you or you're meeting them at the airport what are some of the issues they're facing that they may not talk about because youth workers will see them right and you'll see this as you know you see this young person you just think oh they're 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 being naughty they're stealing or they're or they're they've got this attitude what's that about or they're not living with their parents what why their parents seem great what's what's going on there we sometimes we tend to judge what's in front and we know young people have experienced trauma there's multi-layers of stuff what are the challenges going on inside with these young people that you guys are seeing when working with them thank, thank you Pam um, and, and if I was to write a book I would write extensive pages of uh, the challenges that are affecting uh, young people when they are first arrived here uh, whether it be those that are exposed to violence directly or indirectly through their parents or, or, or the effect of migration from their homeland um, those things are, are the, the critical thing that people bring here as you mentioned earlier trauma is the first thing and trauma can be in many forms mm. there could be people that would be withdrawn from support services and they will come to you just because they heard someone told them to go to that service but they don't know how to present um it could be that the trauma made them become aggressive to significant things or triggers to things that may be happening for example a young person at school finding it hard to maintain their focus at school and if you're trying to maybe press that has a an indiscipline kind of thing and then trigger that thing of okay i'm going to be really uh, punished here in this instance and so they disconnect from that school environment and they can go into the much preferred environment where there is none of that strict stuff so they go into shopping centers to train stations to parks to congregate there hang out yeah to hang out to kind of release that environment that is strict and they can't conform so that would be one thing education is a big thing they often young people come from interrupted educational 
backgrounds, whether it be from their educations that is limited and not in English, or an education that is interrupted, where like myself, did one year one and then skip year two and skip. Um, mind you, I did year one skip, year two skip. When I came to refugee camp, I started in year three. Yeah. See? My year twos and kindies all erased. Yeah. So I started in year three. Those things, interrupted education become an issue. Yeah. Not, not that only, but curriculum and the systems. For example, in Africa or where I came from in the refugee camp, the education curriculum there is about cramming mm. all the information that's taught. Here it's about reflective uh, learning where yeah. the responsibility is on you rather than on your teacher to feed you. Here it is on you to feed yourself. Teachers have a small chance. We used to say teachers have got 70% back in Africa. Now it's you that's got 70 percent 30 percent is for the teacher yeah curriculum is different the mm. focus of the, the education is different so there is there is that element of educational issues and a young person with that kind of mentality will have difficulty settling in here yeah. in, in, in and then you also have the immediate housing issues yeah you know where families are large as our cultural background where we come from and here we lived in uh you know closed small apartments townhouses yeah. compared to where people live in compounds back home where people can have their own ways of um, interacting outside. Kids go outside and interact with other kids much more safely. Here it becomes difficult where you have a a three-bedroom house housing eight people, you know, it's really hard and it mm. becomes a pressure that take a toll on the mental health the physical health of the young person and it's so overcrowding very, very common very common yeah yeah so that is a, a, a big challenge so inter- intergenerational gap become an, an issue as well where kids would learn the Australian culture earlier on and parents will still wanted to maintain them and I'll give you an example here between me and my moms when I was at, at school and I was growing up adolescence I have now grown one beard and this was the two weeks before I, I i got back home on a weekend and she looked at me observed me she saw this one little tiny beard that's just grown and she asked me what did you do i looked at her like what do you mean mom mm. what did you apply because in those those days they believed that applying some some cream to make your hair grow i, I was confused i got angry like no i didn't do anything mm. she was being overprotective and 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 in her mind it was okay he is getting away from me he's mm. becoming an Aussie kid rather than being the child of an uh, African uh, mother mm. um, she was I ended up realizing later on it was because of my cultural setup she didn't know the growth stage the adolescent stage what happens in a man's body because that responsibility was for my dad my uncles my yeah. bigger uh, members of my community it wasn't her responsibility her responsibility would have been my little sister mm. to see what changes happen and how does she, she managed that. So mm. that cultural issues comes in. I would have then disengaged with my mom, ran away from her and say, you start accusing me mm. and da-da-da, rather than just making her known. And later on, two weeks later, I came back to her and say, mom, look at your brother. That's my uncle. Mm. How does he look like? Yeah. Brother goes, it long beard, big one. I say, I'm going to be like him. <laughs> and that's how that issue was resolved. Um, yeah. You know, trying, trying to come up with visual ideas of what a man would look like because my mom had these cultural ideas about it yeah and um, you couldn't so, necessarily see yourself in others around you here like you would if absolutely. you were back um, in Africa you would have more of a reflection of Indeed. others like you and your cultural practices where here you're trying to fit into both worlds yeah. yeah and then comes in the expectation my mom would want me to be the doctor to be the mm. lawyer to be the engineer anything lower than that mm. writing what writing what is writing what do you eat in writing mm. you know so so these things happen and you start to have pressure if a kids have a different career choice yeah. that is not those three things it's probably like a eh, kid get real you know yeah. type of thing um so those challenges are, are, yeah. are there as well and, and i guess does that come from door i guess depending on the parents co- background culture and their experiences obviously those type of roles where your mum had grown up and in the community she'd lived in were the ones that are the roles or the the jobs and employment that make you successful and if there's anything less then you're not going to survive we're here in say Australian society you could run your own business
business and be an entrepreneur and that may not be seen by your mum is something that will allow you to survive. Is is there a little bit of that with these kids as well, that, that disconnection of what success looks like here versus the experiences of the older generation? Indeed. And and in mainly those unforeseen industries like the, yeah. the, the modelling industry, the sporting industry, if a kid pursues sports, it's going to take you nowhere. Don't bother yeah. doing that. So it becomes difficult in those industries. Mm. In other industries where it's predominantly people that have connections that survived, they're like, oh, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to be build those connections it has nothing to do or in other industries where manual labor is the starting point of your career like buildings people start to move away from those industries because kid they don't give you anything what gives you something is the pen go to school go and study and get a university degree i kid you not how many communities culture and linguistical diverse communities that push their kids to degrees and ended up not having anything to do with that what they do for work yeah so the focus is on getting an education whether that education is going to be useful for them building a career or yeah. not wow it just becomes something different so those challenges are there yeah and um, i guess we know there's a high proportion of young people who find themselves homeless are due to relationship and family breakdown and i guess some of this stuff you're talking about isn't because families don't want it to work in their hearts they want the family to work they want to connect but there's all these layers of complexity um especially if you are culturally and linguistically diverse and you have migrated as a refugee it seems like there's just it can really stack on families and young people the complexity of trying to survive and and live a, a flourishing life and stay connected as a family it feels like some of this can be really big challenges for these families And, you know, it could really be the cause of families breaking up and it can be very easily fixed with the right supports. Is that what you see a lot of? Yeah, we we definitely see that the frictions that comes within uh, the multiple layers and the mechanical issues of the Mm -hmm. family gelling well amidst all these things. They're trying to deal with their financial issues. Yep. you know trying to trying to get a job with limited skills or language mm. um, they're trying to settle their family trying to find a right and appropriate accommodation yeah um, they're trying to ensure that they connect with their local community and be accepted as part of the, their new community yeah. you know they're trying to take responsibilities for member of families or, or, or people back home that yeah. they left that they wanted to care for mm. you know and then the child become the center of doing all of those things for example a young person may then be the person that can read in the family and definitely be given the opportunity to then you know go and pay bills or even go and uh, read mails and talk to agencies about their family circumstances and and in some uh, you know circumstances young people will be like no i want to focus on my education i want to focus on Mm -hmm. going out with my friends i want to do this yeah i want to be a young person (laughs) person you know so so those things become a friction and, mm. and force people out and then you you have the the need as well for people to have their own privacy in a crowded household mm. you may not have that privacy as a young person you need it and you, you won't get it some communities will, will will be fine in the first two years to five years of their settlement some communities yeah. will find that it is okay because they've come from a communal uh, setting but then as young people adapt to their new environment it become completely different yeah. the idea of a community or sense of community is no longer their uncles there it becomes their friend that they met someone there that is not within their community the yeah. issues of relations come into being in a community that is a strictly cultural like mine adolescents dating become an issue because mm. they're not allowed to do that and if they do that they need to be coming home and have conversation where parents can be able to supervise or within reach of family yeah. those things families become torn by those things oh i see you you're, you're you're with a different person from a different cultural background yeah you won't be able to see that the young person will not say them they will not say them but those are the things that they they, they, they becomes challenging and 
that forced them to then break their household and, and connection with their families, those cultural issues. Yeah, and that's all going on in the background. So you have this family breakdown occurring due to systems and, and cultural barriers and integration into a new culture. Um, and then you're talking about, obviously, the overcrowding that can be incredibly stressful. How hard is it to find adequate housing for these families and young people to try and decrease the overcrowding that happens? Um, or even young people who've left home who might you know it's it's not good for them to stay together and you're going okay well let's try and separate you all to give you room for a little while and let's work on the relationship how hard is it to source housing for these young people and their families that are appropriate very hard and and there are levels of issues here and i'll talk first of all about uh the systemic issues so when new arrivals come into this country they do not have rental records Mm. so they don't have anything finding an approach property for them becomes very hard because they don't have previous rental history one Mm. two as if they get it and they get lucky uh and in some instances for humanitarian entrance it's easier because there would be a support provided for bond but for other migrants that are not humanitarian migrants it's harder because they have to fork up their own bond yeah it's really important and then we talk about the location of that particular housing some would want it near a community that they can rely on to support them in that initial settlement stage and it is not there that community may be in a housing market that is extremely high yeah you know the prices in sydney trying to get a family to get a five bedroom family of eight where would that be there would be nowhere that they could be able to afford on their settling income. Mind no, you. it's like twelve hundred a week. Yeah, yeah, just for a four or five bedroom home. In especially if you want to be within, you know, say an hour of Sydney City for jobs. Yeah, yeah. So that equity issue becomes a, a, mm. a significant problem for families to acquiring suitable accommodation. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, once you've got that uh, equity issue, and you've got families that are settling in in areas, then you're looking at other things such as proximity to, um, you know, amenities. Is it closer to the school that the kids are going to go to the um, train station? Because in that earlier stages, it's going to be a lot of training it. And yeah. you don't want it to be 30 minutes walking distance or from the bus. No. Those things will need to, to be considered as well. And in case that it is somewhere that is far from connection to services, shopping, it will become very hard to, to source that accommodation. You see the lease is trying to squeeze the availability out of uh, the the, the families that were settled in in that And in any case where um, you find that house, then maintaining that house, the bills come, you would have to pay bills, your food, you know, so then they will need to start finding work. Where do they find work? And once they find work, it becomes something that they can be able to support themselves. That's the biggest issue. Let me take you to the other issue. It's it's more on the, the building side. If you look at current development in New South Wales. All the development is these small units, small apartments, small townhouses. A a block of land that would be of one house size is now divided into three house sizes. That is actually promoting overcrowding. So when you see these properties being built, priced high, small, cannot accommodate large families. This is an issue. This is an issue that is going beyond um, the, the the cracks of the system that we see here it's yeah. much more commercialized living rather than living that is to consider the people that are going to be there yeah um, so this thing become frictions young people yeah. even when they are home they would like to have that kind of demarcation between parents give themselves their own time to maybe study to you know play you don't have it in here in, in, in the new houses being built you'd probably need to move to regional uh, yeah. New South Wales to find the a location like that. and then you would have the issues of amenities and facilities and infrastructure jobs, yeah. jobs. <laughs> but door isn't there enough social and community housing for these people can't they just get a social or community housing house i'm still waiting for mine now for 50 years isn't it <laughs> the yeah, it vacancies is. and and availability of housing is is an issue yeah. and as as some of the people's there is this mentality from the uh, culture and like the diverse communities 
at least in my community that I come from, that you don't want to rely on the handout too much. You just want to yeah. be free. Yeah. You came to this country to establish your life. I want to be able to do that by myself. That handout thing becomes a cultural issue where they don't feel comfortable getting handouts. Yeah. Then you'd have to deal with that. They want to make it and break it by all means. And, and that yeah. becomes a challenge, aside from the vacancy and, and availability yeah. of houses. In, in it's such a misconception, right? Because people just think, oh, you come here, you just want to live in a free country and just, you know, reap all the lovely free things we give. But the reality is, is no one wants that free stuff. You want to work hard for your your, your kingdom you build, for your family. Your, you want to have a career. You want a beautiful home. You want to create family. You want to cook your own meals and sit together as a family and follow your cultural practices and connect with each other and invite others in and have um, all of those things that we all want. And um, it's interesting you say that because we know people do have some of these misconceptions and they're just not the truth. Absolutely. Not a single person that migrates to mm. Australia to depend on welfare. No. All of them say, I'm going to start my new life. Yeah. I'm going to better my life, my kids' life. In the circumstances of my mom, it was important that my kids get an education because she didn't mm. have an education and she knew the power of education and what it can change. Yeah. And her persistence was, let's get an education. If you can get it, it will change your life. Yeah. It will change your circumstances. It will be able to support you and be, and have a better future for, for you, your future kids. And that's what I guarantee 99% of migrants come to this country. They want to be able to start new lives, to make sure that there is a way um, to how they uh, achieve uh, success in Australia. And that dream is the priority. If circumstances force them to depend on welfare, then I, I would say it is the circumstances, yeah. not at all the drive that, that brought people here. People don't come here to depend on other people. No, and Australian dream, isn't it? You've come to Australia to bring all, with all of its diversity, we're all Australians, we've come from different cultural backgrounds and experiences and understanding, and all we want to do is live a good life that is flourishing. I guess we have these supports um, a lot of young people go through these hard times and we've talked about the intersection of relationships and the other bits and bobs and we've also talked about overcrowding and the accessibility of housing. The young person, you know, from the age of 14, you can get a Medicare card here if you're an Australian citizen. Medicare gives you some amazing stuff. You get your dental, you can go um, get eight psychological appointments to support with your mental health. You can get basic surgery, basic support for medical ailments. And, and we know that um, public housing, because we talked a little bit like about public housing just before, and the issue is there's huge waiting lists. You know, public housing is very much an Australian um, citizenship offering. So we offer you things um, if you are a citizen. Um, and these young people are coming and they're not citizens and they don't want to rely on this system, but they're trying their hardest to make it work. The families are, the young people are. But then they find themselves in this gap between trying to make it work as you say in really tough circumstances from time to time and a lot of it can be trauma the results of trauma we know young people tend to become homeless because of trauma no matter where you're from all trauma can look different but mostly homelessness is due to some lead up to traumatic experiences having a negative effect on the young person how hard is it to get medicare and and australian citizenship and start getting access to help because if you don't want it but yet you need it but you haven't become australian citizen yet what what happens to these young people that are falling through the cracks with this group door? Yeah, um, and, and let me take the spotlight to highlight one group that don't have uh, Medicare access. Please. Asylum seekers. Yes. They have no safety net or any opportunity to get any support because of the way that they arrived at this country. Mm. With And you've talked about misconception now where people talk about the Kyujin bus. Which mm. queue? If, yeah. if I tell you that there was a queue, I wouldn't have arrived to Australia here if there was a queue. Yeah. There's that hypothetical thinking of queue jumpers. 
the yeah. asylum seekers are not entitled to most of the Medicare. And in some cases, it's left to the state to determine, mm. you know, availability of healthcare for, for some of those people. And so that's a group that is really in need of, of, of support and that really get left behind in, in yeah. often uh, circumstances like that. Not okay. Um, so, so that's that. And then let's talk about the um, citizenship. If you look at it, when I first arrived, it used to be two years and you get your citizenship. Mm. How beautiful was it that I got my citizenship in that time? When and you- that was largely because my mom forced us to do it. Like, just get it. You are here, you become yeah. permanent and you'll be able to have access to some of the things that other people don't have access to. Come to now and compared to my brother who lives in Adelaide who couldn't get citizenship then mm. and then got in trouble with the law and then got his visa cancelled. Now in detention centre, we locked them up mm. just because their path in life hasn't been as smooth as it is. Yeah. With all the trauma that he's gone through, with all the challenges um, that he's gone through, for someone who was studying a law degree to go down from there to becoming someone now in detention centre. This is the privilege of not having a citizenship and that ensure that that person is locked away, further increasing their trauma, mental health, yeah. and, and privilege of having a free life to be able to contribute. And that's my brother. Think about mm-hmm. it. That's a half of me. Me yeah. here that has uh, had life that's gone on uh, well on my side and been able to succeed and got a career. And then you juxtapose that to, to my brother who is in detention. Yeah. What is the need for that? What is yeah. the need for, for having that sort of uh, policy and, and regulations that are not beneficial? fitting to the human human person this is the critical issue when you when you see issues of access they they get highlighted in those extremities and 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 how challenging that could be so to me i i believe and i know very well that young people that have less or access issues and are categorized by visa by eligibility by the fact that they're not citizens even including i was dealing with a young person it frustrated me who was studying at or western Sydney university they call themselves the young person was on a carer's visa straight from a refugee camp came on a carer visa so still a refugee regardless yes. of the visa they're taking and has a female studying engineer so you wow. could see how amazing that story looked but you know what they were not able to access any fee help that young person would need to work yeah. to be able to fund her school, to be able to feed herself and her family, to yeah. be able to pay for accommodation, books, things like that. You yeah. think about that. A young so person expensive. would have to work and I start fighting for it. I went to the university, to the university chancellor, you know, and, and no one could do anything because of the visa category of a young person, even though they were a refugee. You know, this is, and that young person starts to have mental health, starts to have uh, worries. She's set up to be homeless. She's, that's the trajectory. That's where exactly. she's headed, right? Like what that's else? Exactly. You can't get a job and a qualification in a sector where women are, yes, get that engineering job. We want more women in engineering. She's doing what we wanted to do, but yet there's just nothing to help nothing her get there. Her. And if we don't give her something to help her get there, she's not going to get there, which means the adverse happens to her, right? Absolutely. The system, and I felt powerless to have witnessed that because there was no one else higher than a chancellor to make that decision. And say for the interest of this young person, let's just forget about the, the eligibility. Let's forget about the, the visa category. For God's sake, a young person is a young person. Yeah. If they don't have a visa now and down in the future they have a visa, they become Australian down the track and they will contribute. Their skill set that they're yeah. actually getting from that university, they will give it back to the Australian community. And this is what we can't see. Now I have a little one coming in. You do, your little one. Gorgeous. Hello, welcome. <laughs> Want to say hello? Okay. Right. Hello, hello, gorgeous. <laughs> and you know, you're right. I mean, you talk about your journey and your brother, and then this young person, and it's it's the small things that can make a huge difference. And now you're giving back to hundreds of thousands of people and working for SSI and giving back to the people you work with, giving back to your community and through your little your little one just there, you're, you're giving back and, and teaching them. So the small supports that we can provide can make a huge ripple of a difference.
difference. If only we would free up access for people to be able to get those. And I guess things like a subsidised rent living or even a slightly cheaper university degree or even access to HECS to pay it off in the future would be a very wise investment for this young person you're advocating for because if they end up having to go to detention, it's going to cost more than them Absolutely. doing this and contributing to society. So, you know, it's it, what you're saying is, is is just seems so basic and, and easy to comprehend, but yet we make it so complex, Store. And I guess that leads, that leads me to my next question. You and I had a bit of a chat when we met about definitions of homelessness and what that looks like in culturally diverse communities. Can you talk to me about that? Because I found it, no one had ever really articulated it to me how you did. And I love the language you use around it. Can you educate our listeners what uh, homelessness looks like in these communities and some of the definitions and, and what actually homelessness looks like? Absolutely. This is the favorite part of this conversation because uh, this is where I may be able to get rich one day if I veer into writing. <laughs> and, and this is a concept that I uh, came up with sometimes back when I was um, doing a panel with uh, Y Foundation. It's one of the homelessness conference. I brought a number of young people to a panel who had various life stories to share yeah. um, and experiences in, in homelessness as well as trauma. And I just call it more than just a roof over a head. And that is exactly where homelessness should be articulated in circumstances like this. Homelessness is not just getting people into a house. It is supporting people to be able to live a safety life in all the aspects of their life. For example, mm-hmm. a young person in a cultural linguistic community may not find themselves homeless if they live with a relative, if they live with a friend, mm. which is common in some mm-hmm. and and or if they have in in fact couch surf somewhere, they may not call themselves homeless. Yeah. You know that. So this type of uh, of instances and scenarios create this issue around okay where is the permanency for that young person and how do we support that and what caused that young person the conceptual idea of homelessness in the core community is not the same as it is in the mainstream community and even what support services too often we run to taking people into supported accommodation or, or group homes that are mixed with people that may not see relevant or people that have a different kind of upbringing to the young people from cultural background and then they dilute the setting the young person would be disconnected and further traumatized mm. through that process so in looking at homelessness it's looking at a range of issues that the young person is going through it's their mental health it's their access to support um, that they're not getting it's the challenges that they're facing at home yeah. it's the now and then they go to their home knowing that it's not a a place for them it's not safe for them it's the definition that's broader than just someone who is living outside a house it's a combination of things it's more than just a roof over a head yeah i like that definition in it and it speaks in a very real way because you mentioned you know sleeping on a couch may not be considered homelessness but we know that couch surfing is homelessness so there's definitely a definition of the two there's a, there's a separation to the two and as you said it's where it's more than just a roof and couch surfing I guess in its classic term should be you're just given a roof and a couch where I know where you might be from a large family and living situations might be a little different and as you said you know you spoke of your um, upbringing and how you know your community is built and the type of houses you live in and how those houses are connected and who lives where and what happens I think having a blanket Western white Anglo, uh, I guess it's hard to call us one because we're all very different from different backgrounds, but that very sort of, we could call it like whitewash Western terminology and saying, well, everybody comes under this blanket is not the right way to support every single young person. So I guess this really uh, sort of hit home for me, the importance of the individualized nature of needing to support these young people based on individual needs. So it's what is it for 
that young person? Um, what is homelessness for them? What what are their cultural needs? How do they see themselves and expanding sort of from this strength-based model where you're looking at all aspects of that young person's life before we actually decide if they're at risk of harm or they are considered homelessness in that moment. And I guess that's where your expertise comes in, isn't it? Because the work you guys do with young people is really looking at that holistic assessment to go based on what we know about these young people, their cultural background and their circumstance, then you can make that assessment. How do your team go about doing some of that work from time to time to get that right? Because you would deal with many different young people from different cultures and it can be very different. Absolutely. And as you describe it, it is important to focus on the central element, which is the individual person in front of you. Um, And uh, SSI has got this brilliant idea of looking at cultural responsive practice. And it is not just about looking at the culture of the person. It's looking at you as an individual. What are your cultural understanding that you may have or cultural practices that you may have that will impede on your service to the young person in front of you? How do you understand your own cultural perceptions? Reflect on them and be able to share that reflection with yourself and say, hey, I need to be mindful of this. For example, if the young person then look at me in the eye, it doesn't mean that they're lying. It just means that their cultural setting does not allow young people to look at dolls in their eyes. That's plain. That's something that you need to know. There is no sets of cultural rules that are there for everyone. It's just that have the understanding that this is where it it starts from. Trauma-informed practice is also another thing. I was uh, working with a school uh, in, in Western Sydney. And parts of that was to look at how do I support this school to support the young people from cultural background in their school to be able to share a bit of my learning in, in my space, as well as give these young people something to share about that they can also make it in their own right. It doesn't have to be the way that the school wants them, but it is a way that fits for them to understand their traumas, to understand the previous issues that may have triggered them to behave in this way. A teacher once was talking about a child that would come to class mm. and would disengage. And if someone have any issue, he will get really aggressive. And they mm. call that that was a behavioral issue. Mm. And they would send home or they will get detained or this thing. And then I came in and and I observed and I talked to that young person. I started drilling into that. A young person revealed to me that um, their father was really killed in the war previously. Mm-hmm. And some of that is what triggered this thing. And they have had a interrupted education. So they weren't prepared for in-class learning. No. Yes, IAC may have prepared them for language, but yep. not for the challenges that comes with that young person. And in some instances, services don't assess young people well. Mm. Uh, or they even re-traumatize people. I, I went to a service with my mom when we first came to Sydney, when we moved to, to Sydney from Toowoomba. And I went to a service and they did the assessment and I became the person that was trying to translate and, you know, share some of the things that the caseworker was saying to me. Yeah. And I walked out of that session crying myself because I was so hurt, so traumatized, hearing my mom repeating her story. This is the thing that we start to have when we look at trauma-informed and how we support people. Yeah. It becomes important. There's also this element, and, and SSI does it really brilliantly. They have a pool of bilingual workers. Yeah. We call them the, the, the bilingual guides. These are the people that are interpreting who understand communities and understand issues, some of the cultural groups bring. So we matched a a cultural uh, person with that particular person to be able to support them and and understand and help the case manager to understand what's going on in the life of a young person from a cultural perspective. How do we work with them? How do we uh, support the the issue with a different angle that is not mainstream? Um, So there is a a line of things that that is done. And then very simply, listening to young people is a big thing. 
Yeah. Um, I'm saying this because if I hadn't been listened to in that first instance where I walked into the youth service, yeah. and I got offered. Remember, I got offered football. I got offered yeah. pool table, but that wasn't what I wanted. No, what I wanted was different to that. And as soon as I shared, and the youth worker was like, "Yeah, go for it," I was able to find my calling. I was able to um, then do a project that will share my experiences with community. I I heard that again on a, in a conference where a young person was talking, and as the young person was sharing their experiences, where he had walked into a, a, a youth service to get a, a program running about the skill set that he was having about music production. Yep. No one wanted to listen. They start to put all these sorts of bureaucratic process around it. And the young person was lost, completely mm. lost to a point where he did it at his own garage a home which had much more success than taking into a service. Wow. You know, these sort of things can go a long way in supporting uh, young people to be able to engage more with, with services and to be able to address some of those equities and, and challenges that may lead to homelessness down the track. The importance of client-centered and youth-centered models is, is very important. And I would encourage people to utilize that, continue to talk to young people. Even if you talk to one young person, you'll find something more different to your perspective. In the youth collective program, the first program I did was this amazing program where we did a youth symposium on employment. And as usual, you ask people, what's wrong? Employment is wrong. Yeah. Then I said, okay, what is exactly wrong with employment? Mm. What is it that is a challenge? And people start to talk about things like pre-employment support that is not there. Uh, they start to talk about uh, local job experiences. They start to talk about other significant issues. And I said, okay, let's sit down and design it. How, yeah. how that employment project will look like and trial it. So we did trial a project and yeah. um, at the time we call it the gateway to your future nice and gateway was to address some of those things yeah. i went to negotiate with a service they they used to make eyeglass frame because a young oh, person yeah. has come to me and said i want a job or i aspire to get a job in biomedical tech field yeah. and i'm thinking bio what i don't <laughs> even know what the- I don't even know what that is. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, it's not to say designing stuff using biochemicals. And I said, oh, okay. Thankfully, um, the the person I was working for connected me to that person. Yeah. And we sat down and the person was like, you know, just one person, just one person. I say, look, just four weeks. Give this young person four weeks to do a a work experience in a field that she has by. At the end of that four weeks, you know what? The the, the, the service, the employer would say, I'm taking this young person on and do you have more young people uh. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like okay you guess what i'm going to sponsor this person to study university in wow. this particular related field amazing that's because we've done that um gateway project just to support young people and listen to them support them in the way that they feel really yeah. is going to be able to support their goals and, and and visions for what they want to do in life so really it's amazing if you we start to look at things from that angle and and yeah. you know prioritize people and I'm, I'm really privileged to work at SSI where I get to do that get to share my expertise and 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 the expertise of other many people that works at SSI who have immense experiences. Yeah, and I guess you've said some really vital things there, the importance of treating every young person as an individual and then asking young people what's right for them. What do you need? What do you want? Because they will tell you what they need and what they want. And when you give somebody what they need and what they want, they'll make something out of it. And I guess you've spoken a lot. That seems to be the thing with the young people that you've really spoken about today um, on the podcast is around that resilience and that uh, agency and advocacy you've taught young people about. And when they're given that, something magical happens. I know we're running out of time at the moment, Dor, and I know you've got your beautiful daughter there with you. She's absolutely gorgeous. So we won't keep you much longer. And for those of you listening at home, um, we're recording during COVID um, and we all know that we never apologise for our children children or our animals when doing recording. So it's really nice to have her there um, as it really instills the importance of youth and young people. So one last question I want to ask is what keeps you coming back, working with young people every day and supporting them? What is it, Dor, that keeps you here? 11 years, mate, 11 years you've done this for. (laughs) I love that. As I reflect every day, the young people that I work with or come across in the last 11 years, you hear one 
once in a time, a young person will come back and say, hey, remember you helped me with this. Yeah. Remember you did this. Remember you did this. It makes me feel contented with, with life. Uh, being able to help someone to find their feet, to succeed in life is very important. Number two is I've got kids. You've just heard my daughter now and I apologize if it has interrupted this conversation. No, don't you apologize. As I said, you don't apologize for children or animals. It is, they're welcomed. I've got kids and I believe if I support another person, they would form their natural identity and, and becomes who they are, succeed in life. And maybe one day they will support my children. Yeah. They will interact with them. If it is not my children, it's children within the community that I worked in. That's how life works. That's the bigger picture is you do it today to someone's child, yeah. someone's um, daughter or, or, or son, they will do it to your daughter or son. Yeah. And that's the cycle of how humanity should, should work. I also said to myself always that I am the living testament to, to the values and belief of my family, my mom and my uh, dad, what they want me to be. And yeah. the, the, the moments that they taught me, they taught me to be a person of all. In my family tree, let's help. I get up every morning and say, I'm blessed to have my mom and my dad, peace be upon him, um, in supporting uh, my vision. And, and that vision is something true to myself supporting a breathing life to be able to achieve what they want in life. That gets me up every morning. I have tough days. I have busy days. I have really annoying days. But then I looked at it and say, I'm doing this for someone and I'm doing this for myself. There's nothing greater than doing it to please myself. Um, and that's the service to humanity is something that's greater. Um, there is also the feeling that I get working with people I work with at work. SSI is such an amazing organization. I believe just like Y Foundation, where I feel the connections and the love of people that I work with, the, the support, the mentoring that I get from senior people than myself and, and from people in the organization coming up, learning every single day. It fills me, the, the culture of the organization fills me up to be able to come back and, and learn more from people and also contribute together with a shared vision from, from the people that I work with and larger agencies within the, the, the New South Wales Settlement Partnership that support the communities. The bigger we are in achieving this goal, the bigger we we are in, in supporting people in, in need. The people that are vulnerable that were in my situation, I came from humble beginning and it is that that I carry into, into, into work and that wakes me up every day. I am privileged to be in this place of grace. I think that should be another of my copyrighted statement, a place of grace. Um, and so thank you very much for allowing me to share and for everyone who's been listening, um, thank you for, for your time and I appreciate um, having a conversation with me, fam. Uh, wonderful uh, to to be able to share my insights. You're very welcome, Zor. And um, you know, I uh, I'm not a human of of great faith myself. Um, I'm not overly religious, but um, a saying that I learnt, um, which was really important in my work, is Ubuntu. I am who I am because of you, and it really reminded me of that. And um, yeah, I think we're all connected, and the ripple effect is greater from a very small ripple, from a very small stone can have masses, um, can affect masses, can really impact people's lives. And that's really resonated through your story today. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for you being so open and honest with us, Dor. I know you don't have to, but it's who you are. And I really feel your authenticity as a human being. Um, and I don't doubt your legacy will live on through your kids um, and the work you're doing with the young people there. I'd like to extend an enormous thank you um, to SSI for allowing you to speak with me today today. Um, your advocacy and your team's advocacy and contributions to our sector are appreciated. And we know without you, hundreds of thousands of people every year would not get the support that they need due to the system failure that currently exists across Australia. So thank you for doing that on behalf of our listeners. Um, but we'll call it a day here, Dor. Thank you. And we hope to chat another time soon. Thank you very much, man. Thank and thanks you. everyone. Thanks for listening to the Young and Homeless podcast. See you next time.